Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance. Join our hosts as they discuss a wide range of topics and speak with leading cybersecurity, technology, and compliance experts. Now is the time for Secure Talk. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Secure Talk. This is Mark Schreiner, and I'll be your host for this episode of Secure Talk. Secure Talk is brought to you by Adequest, your cybersecurity and compliance partner. Today, we're going to be talking to Kip Boyle, founder and CEO of Cyber Risk Opportunities. Kip has worked in a variety of cybersecurity roles since 1982, including serving as the director of wide area network security for the Air Force's F-22 Raptor program and working as a senior consultant for the Stanford Research Institute. Kip is also the author of Fire Doesn't Innovate, the executive's practical guide to thriving in the face of evolving cyber risks, which is a highly informative yet really accessible book that, in my opinion, should be required reading for anyone in the C-suite of any organization. Kip is going to talk about his book, his company, and give us some advice and some ideas on how to protect ourselves against cyber threats. So, hey, Kip, how are you today? Doing great, Mark. Thanks for having me on the show. Hey, it's my pleasure. My pleasure. And by the way, um, as I mentioned earlier, I, I just finished most of your book. I really, really enjoyed it um, and want to come back to that a little bit later. Uh, but before before we dig into your book, maybe you could you take a few minutes and explain about your decision from working inside of a company um, to going out and setting up your own consulting business? Sure, happy to do that. Um, I I think I've always had a desire to launch my my own company. When I was uh, in middle school, I, I actually would buy candy on the way to school. Um, you know, like a buy, buy like a pack of gum. And then when I got to school, uh, kids, you know, didn't have uh, any gum. So they had to get it from someplace. And I happened to have some. And one day some kid offered to buy some gum for me, uh, one piece. And he, he offered to pay as much for the piece of gum as I'd paid for the whole pack of gum. And all of a sudden I went, Oh, the, the, <laughs> the is... light, the, the light bulb went on, right? <laughs> yeah. And I thought, well, this is pretty cool. And I didn't have to, you know, twist anybody's arm. Uh, it just happened this way. And, you know, I didn't really understand what was going on then, but you know, as I, as I, as I got older, um, I started to understand this a little bit better, but but it took me years really to get to the point where I felt like I had enough skills and confidence and something truly valuable to offer. So it was a long journey, and um, but here I am. Okay, and, and how um, how long ago did you actually set up your business? Uh, I launched it in June of 2015. Excellent, excellent, and. Um... And as part of your business, you you wrote your book, Fire Doesn't Innovate, The Executive's Practical Guide to Thriving in the Face of Evolving Cyber Risks. Is that? Yes. Okay. That's, yeah, a... that, that's right. Yeah. It's really interesting how we title books these days compared to, you know, how they were titled several years ago. And I imagine it'll change again. Um, I worked with my publisher to figure out what to call it. And so that little recipe there for, you know, giving it a short, catchy little name that intrigues people and then giving giving it sort of like a subtitle, you know, that long subtitle that you just read. Uh, apparently, that's all part of the publishing game now. So uh, thanks to my uh, my uh, publisher for helping me figure that out. <laughs> Well, no, it's uh, I, I I think it does the trick because it, it 
it, it intrigues you with the fire doesn't innovate. What, what is that about? So, so the idea here is that from my working with executives since 1992 is when I first started working in cybersecurity, which we didn't call it that back when I started, the names changed uh, a few times. But I noticed and continue to notice that executives really struggle to internalize what cyber risk really is. And and their common experience managing risk is with what I would call static risks, risks that really don't change very much. Once you learn how to manage certain risks, you can get really good at it and you can actually get on top of it. And fire is, I think, a wonderful example of a static risk that humanity has done a marvelous job of of controlling, right? So the um, so the idea here is that fire is just composed of oxygen, fuel, and heat. If we want fire, we just bring those three things together and we get fire, whether that's inside of an internal combustion engine or you know, inside of a furnace so that we can heat a building. And when we don't want fire anymore, we just remove one of those components and fire goes away. If fire goes out of control, which doesn't happen very much in modern cities anymore, then uh, we have sprinkler systems and we have fire hydrants and we have fire departments. And if everything goes to heck in a handbasket, we have fire insurance, right? So it's a well understood risk, um, you know, of fire. But cyber is totally different. Cyber is not static. Cyber is always changing. If 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 you told me, hey, Kip, what are the essential uh, elements of cyber? I I would tell you, well, this is what they are today. Um, I could tell you what they are at points of time in the past, but I can't really do a, a wonderful job of predicting what they're going to be in the future because cyber is constantly innovating to figure out new ways to hurt us. And so it's a never ending game. Well, maybe you could talk a little bit about the evolution of cyber uh, cyber attacks, cyber risk over, say, the last, um, I don't know, five, 10 years. Sure. So 10 years ago um, in 2009, cyber was really considered to be a obscure technology problem that was best dealt with by, you know, one or two specialists that were on the IT uh, located in the IT department, um, and and these were people who really struggled because they had to pursue an agenda that I would uh, uh, characterize as a bottom-up agenda. So they'd see some notice or an alert uh, of you know some kind of a of a notice of vulnerability, and then they would have to go out into their organization and kind of campaign to uh, to get somebody to pay attention and to and to do something, whether that was to make a configuration change on a piece of equipment or install a patch. Um, it was an uphill battle for these folks. Fast forward to today, and I think executives now recognize that that this is not just an obscure technological problem. And they're trying to come to grips with how do I manage this thing now, now that it's a business risk on par with risks that I have to deal with all the time to my sales funnel, to my order fulfillment capability, to my accounts receivable, because failures in any of those areas can put me out of business or severely impair my business. And cyber can do that now too. So it's a, it's a whole different world. And unfortunately, as I look into the future, it's actually uh, probably going to get worse 
there's a, uh, a research company called Cybersecurity Ventures, and their, uh, their estimate is that global damages to cybercrime will, uh, will be $6 trillion by 2021, and that's only a couple of years away. That's that's amazingly scary. Um, so so you 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 touched on how organizations their their view of cyber is evolving. Um, how about threats themselves? I mean, what have you seen over the last few years? Because you know you're talking about how fire doesn't evolve. Fire is pretty much constant. It's it mm-hmm. needs those three ingredients. Um, but with with cyber threats, what are you seeing as um, new threats that you know maybe three or four years ago we couldn't imagine? Right. So I think um, there are several um, innovations when it comes to cyber threats. Now, here's one that I think people really have to um, to understand because it's going to be one of the reasons why the damages are going to go to six trillion dollars. And by the way, I've never seen one trillion of anything. So six trillion of something sounds even more monstrous, right? It's like how does this? How do you how do you get six trillion dollars? Let me tell you what's one thing that's going on, and that's the automation of cybercrime. So what I tell people is imagine uh, Jeff Bezos and Amazon and look what look what technology has allowed Amazon to do. It has allowed them to scale and to dominate different industry uh, industries that they go into. First it was books and look what they did to booksellers and publishers and and they're going into all these new areas, right? And and dominantly this is because of of their uh, superb use of technology and business acumen and other things too. And and that's what's actually happening in cybercrime right now is every technology and the know-how that Amazon is employing to do what it's doing to Walmart and to other retailers is now in the hands of cyber criminals. And so they're scaling they're, the cyber crimes that they or you know the crimes that they've always been engaged in. They're now scaling them, and the reach they have global reach now like they've never had before. And so that's a huge differentiator, right? They're actually automating crime and scaling it like we've never seen. Well, that's interesting. But at the same time, in your book, um, you know, you give some examples uh, that are very much based upon social engineering. Um, And I I think there was something about the FACC uh, fake president yeah, uh, business email compromise in Australia, right? Um, and so that that's not automation; that's just social engineering. But even those attacks are getting more, what's the word, targeted, more precise, more, and sometimes obviously more effective. Yeah, so it's through the use of scalable automated crime that cyber criminals can now target us. And um, and 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 in my book, I talk about that. You know, the idea that they're not attacking our technology. Really, um, you know, it used to be again. Rewind the clock ten years ago. Uh, cyber attackers are trying to defeat or overcome our technological defenses uh, for the most part, um, our firewalls and so forth. And these days, they just attack people. They're just finding ways to send phony messages to to real people. And and it's the oldest trip trick in the book. It's the con, right? It's how can I grab this person's emotions and manipulate their emotions, whether it's greed or fear, right? How can I in how can I induce those emotions in a very sharp, rapid way and then get them to do something that they ordinarily would never do? And the FACC example um, is a great one because it shows what uh, what these uh, cyber criminals can actually do when they're successful manipulating people's emotions. Now, 
um, help me remember this correctly. The, um, the attackers were able to convince somebody in an organization to transfer something like, was it $15 million? $56 million. It's an enormous Fif sum of money. $56 million. Okay, so... I mean, in your capacity, how, what kind of advice would you give an organization? Um, because obviously you just said this is not really a, a technology attack. No. This is a, an attack on human emotions, um, creating a sense of urgency. What kind of advice would you give organizations to prevent something like this from happening? Right. So even though it's an attack on people's emotions, there are things that we can uh, do that are um, that come from multiple different places. And so what I tell executives is that you need to bring uh, all of your all of your resources to bear on dealing with this. And so let's let's kind of break down the attack a little bit and, and see, you know, how could it how could it be dealt with? Well, so first of all, um, it's, an, you know, somebody acted emotionally to an illicit request. So that person probably wasn't very well trained to recognize that this that this could happen to them and what they should do if they suspect that something is um, is being attempted and this kind of a fraud is being attempted so so good training letting people know that this could happen and actually training them by sending them every month a uh, a pretend uh, phishing attack and helping them you know realize what it, what does it look like what does it feel like when I'm when somebody's trying to trick me with a false email so that's kind of the people dimension. Process-wise, I think it's it's astounding that uh, that a single person on the strength of a terse email that came in at a weird time of the day probably um, allowed them to move $56 million without any kind of a second authorization. They didn't. It doesn't seem to me from what I've studied in the incident that anybody else had to approve the transfer of $56 million and so that's a that's a big process failure, right? So processes have to be strengthened so that no one person can execute a transaction of that magnitude on the strength of something so flimsy as a single email. All right. So that's that's a process issue. Um, management needs to step up and and create policies and create a culture where it's okay for people to respond to an email that's trying to fool them by pushing away from their desk, taking a moment to think about it, and then going to a supervisor or a, a you know a senior member of their team and say, "Hey, take a look at this. You know, is this? I know this says it comes from our CEO, but is this for real? And can you verify this for me? Right? So, so management's got to create uh, the 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 space, right? The psychological freedom, the emotional um, freedom for for people to be able to push back on stuff that doesn't seem right. And then the final thing is there is technological things that you can do here. You can strengthen uh, the uh, the the security with which you use to exchange email messages with other organizations. There are different technologies out there that will let you um, determine whether an email that purports to come from uh, a domain is actually was actually sent by that domain. So there's some things you can do by talking to your technology people that um, that can help filter out um, phishing attacks in that way. But you just can't count on them working all the time because, as I said before, these uh, cyber criminals are innovating constantly and figuring out new ways to get around the technological defenses. Well, I think that's some some really good advice there, and um, you know I, I'm actually amazed that. 
somebody would have the authority to transfer $56 million without having at least one second round of approval. Right. Uh, having worked in some rather large companies and always, you know, above a certain dollar amount, you know, either a second or sometimes even a third person's approval was required. I'm just thinking, like, how much money did that company have and how much authority did the CEO have? I mean, that's just amazing. It is amazing. It's it's crazy. And I think, you know, um, we can we can look at that from our position right now and, and we can say, gosh, you know, that's so obviously wrong. But I think if you get into the psychology of like, well, why would they set up their their systems like this? And I think not knowing firsthand, but I think it has something to do with, you know, the CEO um, wanting to trust their team. Probably this is somebody that they worked with for a long time. They trusted their judgment. They gave them a lot of authority and they wanted to move fast, right? So this is probably a company that's used to, to doing deals very quickly and cleanly and, um, you know, so a lot of entrepreneurial spirit. So that's probably what was going on here. And they just didn't consider, you know, what if our natural impulses to move fast were hijacked? and what could happen to us. I just don't think they thought about that. You know what, that's a really good point and observation. I I once uh, took over a country manager role uh, in Asia, and the the head of HR slash finance uh, had been with the company for 20 plus years. She had uh, basically freedom to make any kind of uh, financial transaction that was you know within her, within her means. Yeah. And when I came in, I asked. I said, you know, who's approving her, her, you know, the, you know, the money that she's transferring in and out, et cetera. And they said, oh, well, you know, we don't have a, a, a an approval process in there, but you know, it, it's all good because she's been with us for twenty years. And I said, you know what? You're probably ninety nine point nine percent of the time right, but it's just good corporate business practice to have kind of a right. um, a check and balance there right? right it is and and but but you're right though if you if you if, you know people are sensitive about other people's feelings um and say hey you know what if we ask her to get approval how is she going to feel about it mm-hmm. that said 56 million dollars <laughs> right and so as i point out in my book because they lost 56 million dollars they were able to claw back like 11 but they still mm-hmm. lost a tremendous amount of money well that actually caused the entire company to swing from a profitable year to an unprofitable year. It actually had that kind of a material impact on their finances. And that's why I say that um, that cyber is a business risk on par with all the other very serious business risks that executives are managing every day. And because they swung from a net profit to a net loss for that year, the person who, who moved the money got fired. The CFO got fired, and ultimately the CEO was fired, not because they got cyber attacked, but because the financial performance of the organization was so dreadful as a result of that one event. Right. And so you talk about that in your book as well, that um, it, when it comes to a cyber attack, there's there's a lot of ways that a company can be harmed in terms of reputation, uh, your, your reputation, uh, in terms of damage, you know, customers losing trust in you. Um, then there's the financial bottom line. Uh, now with with uh, things like GDPR, you're, you're exposed to potential fines. Um, but you also mentioned the uh, the importance of cyber insurance, right? Uh, w- what are your thoughts around how you know cyber insurance and how it fits into this to this puzzle? <clears throat> yeah. Well, first, a comment about the industry of cyber insurance. It's it's extremely um, immature. 
the carriers don't have the kind of loss history that they have with other types of static risks. So for example, life insurance, automobile insurance, we have loss history. And it turns out that that loss history, if you do a bunch of actuarial uh, calculations, right, put a lot of math to it, you can you can predict what the losses are going to be with, with enough accuracy that insurance companies can stay in business. They know what, char- what to charge in terms of premiums. But cyber doesn't have that kind of a loss history. And because it's not a static risk, they don't yet know how to predict what you know what the price is going to be uh, next year because they don't know how to predict their losses. As a result, they're 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 scrambling to figure it out. So as an executive, if you want to buy cyber liability insurance, do not go to a carrier. Go to a broker. Go to a broker that knows how to evaluate. Uh, insurance policies from multiple different carriers and can help you make apples to apples comparisons. Because if you try to do this yourself, you're not really going to be very successful. It's going to end up being an eeny, meeny, miny, mo thing uh, for you, I think. So that's that's the first thing. The second thing is, is that there's a couple of different ways to use cyber uh, insurance these days. One is you may have a giant customer uh, who's saying, look, you need cyber uh, cyber insurance and you need it in this amount. And you might, as an executive, see it as a box checking exercise, okay? And so, and I see a lot of people doing that. It's like, fine, I'll go get it. I'll go get a, a, a policy and I just want the minimal coverage because I want to pay the least amount of money for it. I still think you should go through a broker. Now, the other way that people are using cyber liability policies, uh, policies is this. Um, the definition of reasonable cybersecurity these days is that your organization can identify your assets and your and your risks. You can um, protect them. You can detect them when somebody's trying to do something bad. You can respond really well, and you can recover from cybersecurity incidents. Right. So those five functions. Well, it turns out that to, to respond and recover um, can be extraordinarily expensive things to do. And so a lot of executives really don't have the expertise to lead a respond and recover effort on a map, you know, when you have a massive cyber failure. But the but insurance companies know that that they this is one thing they do know is that the better job you do in responding and recovering, the lower the total cost is going to be. And so they have experts that they have pre-contracted with. And if you get a cyber policy that allows you to have access to those experts, and you report to them, hey, I think we've been breached, the insurance company will send digital forensics people, you'll get a data breach coach, um, you'll get all this support at the drop of a hat and it'll all be part of your, um, your, your insurance coverage. And so you don't have to build that team uh, with local providers, you can get them all provided to you from the insurance company and that's very powerful. So breach response as a managed service almost. Yeah. It's a very different type of insurance, right? You wouldn't think of calling up your automobile insurance company and using them that way, but that's a reason why cyber is different. Well, it's it's very, very specialized, and hopefully you'll never need those services. Right. So you're not going to want to build a team, per se, that that has all that expertise, but um, but when you need them, <laughs> you yeah, need them. That's right. Um, so talk a little bit about... Um, you know, breach response and how important it is to have a plan in place. Because, I mean, we see a lot of organizations that um, they get hit and first thing they do is they, they, they hide out or they, you know, they um, either they try to convince themselves that it's not as serious as it um, is, 
or they are trying to avoid any kind of uh, you know, public awareness. Uh, and, and at the same time, they're trying to scramble in terms of how to respond. But, um, but other organizations have a, have a plan in place. How important is that? Oh, it's 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 extremely important, and we have some great poster children right now that are instructive in making this point. And so I'll just bring up two quick examples. Um, and there's a lot available on the open internet, so you can go read about these two examples, and you can get a lot more details out there. The first is Yahoo. Look what Yahoo did. They had a series of data breaches which they covered up, which uh, were tremendous in their scale and scope, something like a billion accounts compromised. And the way that bit them is two ways. One is, is that when they got acquired by Verizon, they had to take, I think it was about a quarter billion dollar um, decrease in the acquisition price because of the way that they mishandled these data breaches. So that's an enormous financial penalty to pay in what should otherwise be a really stupendous event, right? You get acquired. Uh, most, you know, most people who get acquired are, are pretty happy about that. They often are um, the recipients of a premium price for being acquired. But Yahoo was the absolute inverse because of the way they handled it. Um, and then the other thing about Yahoo, which we just found out the other day, is that there was a derivative shareholder lawsuit against the board and the senior executives of Yahoo for the way that they handled it. And they settled for something like a $29 million payment. And that has never happened before. And so now you've got boards of directors and senior officers of companies are on notice that, you know, if you if you don't uh, fulfill your duties with respect to data breaches and cyber risk management, um, that you can actually uh, it'll cost you like it'll actually cost you real money, not just uh, foregone profits in an acquisition. So Yahoo is very instructive. And the other one that I want to mention is Equifax wildly instructive. What's great about the Equifax data breach in terms of a learning opportunity for us is that there has been a lot of attention done on what I would call a post-mortem examination of that data breach. And one of the best single reports you can go read is a Government Accountability Office or GAO report on the data breach is very, very good. And I would encourage you to go get it because it actually walks the reader through the timeline of when the breach happened how did Equifax respond and how did they attempt to recover? And by the way, the recovery process is still ongoing for them. But their response was particularly horrible. They did a, a they had a series of missteps. And when you read the report, you can understand why they they um, you know why those missteps happened. But it doesn't change the fact that it was a terrible, terrible response to the point where um, Equifax in their Twitter feed, just give you one example here, was was actually giving out two different URLs that that consumers could use to check to see if their records were part of the data breach. This is before we really knew what was going on. One of the URLs they were giving out was legitimate. One of the URL URLs they were giving out sent people to a phishing site. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Insult to injury. I can't believe it. That's just uh that's terrible. Oh, yeah, uh, it is. So so um you know, I I I read a bit about the the Equifax breach um and I mean some of it comes down to proper um cyber hygiene. I mean, I I think with them they they just hadn't installed a patch That's right. or an update, right? Um, that had been out uh, for, I think, more than six months. It had been publicly available. Uh, 
so talk a little bit about the importance of it because a lot of it really comes down to basics. And I think there's a misconception um, for people who aren't technical, and I, I count myself in that camp, there's this uh, perception or misperception that, you know, cybersecurity, it's super technical. You got to be one of those Mr. Robot guys that, you know, get in there to really understand it. But a lot of it comes down, if you talk about the social engineering aspect of it, it comes down to what you said earlier, training your people, letting them understand what to be aware of, um, and then having the proper processes in place, the approvals, et cetera. In terms of the your IT infrastructure, you need to have some proper hygiene, which is really just fundamentals or basics. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about that? Yes. Um, so uh, the umbrella term that I use for all this is what is good cyber hygiene. And in the book, the way I talk about it is um, is that on uh, in the real world there are germs, and none of us have seen a germ with our naked eye in the wild because they're microscopic in their size. And even though we can't see them, we know that germs make us sick when they get inside of us and we don't like feeling sick. And some of the sickness is like a cold or a flu, but some of the sickness is really horrible, like typhoid uh, fever, right? So, I mean, you can get super, super sick. And so for the last 200 years, Parents have been teaching their children, wash your hands, um, get an annual flu shot, go to the doctor once a year, go to the dentist twice a year, right? So we've got these things that we do that we inconvenience ourselves um, deliberately, right? Because we don't want to get germs in our bodies. We even wear gloves when we prepare other people's food because we don't want to make them sick. We cover our mouths when we cough. And my assertion is, is that we've got um, the internet is full of digital germs, right? Digital cooties. And they'll land on your computer and make you sick. And and, um, and other people will release digital germs as a form of like a biological warfare in, in order to compromise you. And so what I'm trying to do is help people realize that if you can inconvenience yourself to do personal uh, hygiene uh, every day, then you can inconvenience, inconvenience yourself and your organizations a little bit to do good cyber hygiene. And installing security updates is one of those things that you have to do all the time, like washing your hands or covering your mouth when you cough. You just have to accept that it's a cost of doing business because of the way the internet works. Excellent. And, and another point that you bring up is the, uh, the dangers of public Wi-Fi. Um, talk a little bit about that. Sure. So just to extend the germ metaphor, um, <laughs> so, uh, the, um, the public's, the, the public Wi-Fi to me is like a municipal swimming pool that you, you know, you walk up to this, it's a hot day and you really want to jump into the pool and, and you walk up to the edge of this pool, you look around, I mean, and there are kids everywhere jumping into the pool, jumping out of the pool and you look down into the water and for a split second, you're probably thinking like, is this water clean? Like, is this a well-maintained pool? Does it have enough chlorine? Is the pH balance correct? Well, I don't know about you, but I don't travel with pool water testing kit in my pocket. And so I just have to make an, a, a, an in-the-moment decision. Is this water okay for me or not because I can't test it? Well, I think of public Wi-Fi as a municipal swimming pool. You have no idea if that Wi-Fi infrastructure has been compromised or if it's safe. And just because it has a, a major brand logo standing in front of it does not mean that, oh, I love this brand and so their Wi-Fi must be just as you know clean and healthy for me as their drinks and their food. And that, it, that's just not true. It just doesn't work like that. And so what I tell people is, is, is you know, the, the best thing to do is to just not use it. 
it. And it's so easy to avoid public Wi-Fi these days because our mobile devices come with, generally speaking, very good um, data service. And um, and so, you know, it's like, well, why use public Wi-Fi if you don't have to? And if you've got a laptop or something, a tablet that doesn't have onboard cellular, cellular data, most plans these days will come with a hotspot that you can turn on. And, and here's the thing is that... Um, Public Wi-Fi, not only is it potentially dangerous in terms of internet cooties, but um, it's also a privacy issue because when you walk into a store, they, they're tracking that you entered the store, they see where you've gone, right? You're, living, you're leaving little digital footprints everywhere. And so by shutting off your Wi-Fi, you decrease the, the risk that your, your privacy is gonna be violated um, and so on and so on. So uh, don't, just don't use public Wi-Fi, do yourself a favor. It's gonna work better too. Sounds like some great advice. Uh, in your book, you mentioned the importance of negative visu visualization. Right. Yeah. So negative visualization. Um, so let's go back to uh, to Yahoo. Right. So I think that if the executives at Yahoo had spent a moment uh, practicing negative visualization on their data breach, I think they might have made different decisions. And negative visualization, that's spending a moment thinking about how things can go wrong. And what I've observed is that most executives and decision makers spend the vast majority, if not all of their time, thinking about how things will go right with their plans. And they 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 spend a lot of time, uh, you know, being on the happy path, you know, hey, I'm going to acquire this company and then my company is going to grow and then ultimately we're going to be acquired. And they have these really great visions. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with those visions. We need people with vision uh, in leadership roles. But I think it's lopsided. I think they need to spend some time asking themselves, what if this doesn't go right? And a good example is data backups. You don't have to understand how data backups work technically to be able to spend a moment and do a negative visualization exercise and ask yourself, what if I get attacked by ransomware and I choose not to pay the ransom, which is the right choice, by the way, and and, and so I'm going to just scrub my computers and I'm going to restore from backup. But what if when I go to restore from the backup, the backups are empty? or that or that they don't work then what right that's a terrible thing so if i spent a moment thinking about that then as a non-technical executive i could say you know maybe we should test our backups on a quarterly basis just to make sure they work when we really need them what a great risk management strategy that is and i didn't have to do a single technical thing i just needed to shift my my thinking for a few moments into a negative visualization practice yeah, um, Royal Dutch Shell was is quite famous for doing something called scenario planning. Yes, and and they they just look at all kinds of different scenarios, positive ones, negative ones, lateral ones, and uh, and have a plan in place. And they can pull that plan right off the shelf and say, oh, well, here's what we're facing. Let's go for it. And it, it kind of comes back to that whole thing of 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 having a plan in place, um, so that you know if you if there's a breach, you know what the next steps are, etc. Uh, but, but I'd like to come back to the your comment about not paying the ransom because that's the right thing to do. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna push back on you a little bit. Okay, okay? let's just say you're a a multinational company or a large large regional organization. You know. Uh, 10,000 employees um, and you've had some of your data has uh, has been encrypted by these bad actors and they're saying hey pay us 50,000 bucks 
And you're saying don't do it. Don't do it. The potential the potential downside for you though could be twenty, thirty million dollars. Hopefully you have insurance. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. But I mean, are you serious? I mean, you're sitting around the table with a bunch of executives and, and they're like, dude, fifty thousand dollars and we're done. And 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 the downside is, is a lot steeper than that. So just walk us through that. Sure. Well, first of all, I understand that the financial calculus here looks grim, right? <clears throat> Talk to the city of Atlanta. They can tell you because they're, the ransom demand that was made uh, on them once they had the ransomware attack occur to them was a fraction of the $10 million plus that they paid in order to dig themselves out of that bad situation. But they didn't pay the ransom. So I know the finances look really bad, but you have to ask yourself, so why didn't the city of Atlanta pay the ransom? Well, I don't know exactly why, because they haven't said, but let me share my thinking on this, which is every dollar that you spend on a ransom payment is a vote for more attacks plain and simple. And that doesn't just mean attacks on other people, but that could mean a follow-up attack on you. So you're you're voting for more criminal behavior because we have to remember, and this goes back to fire doesn't innovate as a concept, these digital cooties on the internet, they're not uh, naturally occurring things. There are people who sit around all day, teams of people working in well-lit spaces with HR departments, vacation policies, payrolls, and their job all day long is to figure out new ways to steal our money. And so when you pay a ransom, you're funding their activities and they get encouraged and they do it more. And it's really that simple. If we continue to make the mistake of paying these ransomware payments, then these malicious organizations are going to grow and grow and grow. And and the attacks are just not going to stop. So, you know, I think it's in all of our best interests to not encourage this behavior uh, so that our our online community can can continue to be trusted and we can continue to conduct commerce on the Internet. Well, I, I totally agree that that's the ethical uh, way to proceed. I'm just it's the selfish way to proceed because you, it, I, it's the, it, you're you're I think choosing not to pay the ransom can be seen as a completely self-serving way to do it because you know you don't want to get out of one situation only to find yourselves back into another situation right away and when you pay the ransom there's no guarantee that the people holding you hostage are going to keep their word either so i mean fair enough fair know, enough but i i i just wonder if those guys over at equifax or or some of the other um play, uh, companies that we spoke about I think they'd be pretty tempted to just pay the ransom. And and the thing is... Absolutely. Yeah. There's huge temptation to pay the ransom. I get that. And by the way, full disclosure, I've never been temp- tempted to pay a ransom. So, you know, I, I have to... Um, put a caveat on the things that I'm saying, which is it's easy for me to armchair quarterback this stuff. I get it. Um, Hollywood Presbyterian Medical Center paid the ransom. Um, other people have paid the ransom, but but there's plenty of organizations out there today that are seeing the wisdom, the long-term play of not paying the ransom. Okay. So while we're on this kind of ethical thread here, um, talk a little bit about hacking back and the your thoughts on on that. Sure. So... This is a very controversial topic, and I think it's a good one that we should be discussing because in the real world, um, when somebody is attacking you, 
you know, uh, it's codified in law. I'm not a lawyer. This is my understanding of it. But, you know, if somebody hits you, you can hit them back, right? Kind of a thing. Like there's, there's, there's such a thing as defending yourself in the real world. And so a lot of people are rightfully asking, why can't I defend myself in the digital world, particularly when the institutions that I have traditionally counted on to protect me are impotent, right? So, so what else am I supposed to do? Uh, I'm a bank. You know, why can't I hit back when somebody hits me? So I think the urge is uh, is is deep inside of us, and I totally get it. the The problem with hacking back is that there's a real attribution problem with the internet. So if you're in a bar having a drink and somebody comes up behind you and slugs you, it's pretty easy to figure out who did that. So there's not really much of an attribution problem. But on the internet, you really don't know who's attacking you. And so if somebody's attacking you, it's a pretty fair bet that they're attacking you through somebody else's computer. So if you demolish that computer because it's attacking you, you've actually just attacked an innocent victim. So that's a big problem. And, um, and I don't think you want to be engaged in that. Plus, in the United States, it's illegal to do that according to the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. So, you know, if you don't want to be engaged in, in illegal behavior, you should be careful. However, there's an alternative, and it's called active defense. And I talk about this in my book. There's a wonderful report that you can get uh, that I refer to in my book that talks about the, the shades of gray in between totally passive defense on one side, which is, you know, installing a firewall um, and other things, and then uh, and then hacking back, which is on the other end of the spectrum, which, which is where you, you're engaged in offensive cyber actions. There's a whole gray zone in the middle there, which is available to us without violating uh, law and without uh, with severely decreased risk that we're going to hurt an innocent bystander. And a great example of that is a honeypot, which is a fake computer that you set up in your network, and it's designed to attract uh, cyber attackers. And when somebody interacts with that fake computer, again, called a honeypot, um, there's only one reason why anybody would interact with it. It's because they're cyber attacking you. And so you get advanced notice that somebody's attacking you and you actually slow them down because they're so interested in this fake server, which they don't know is fake. And that gives you time to respond. So that's one example of active defense that's not hacking back. And I think we should be doing those kinds of things more often. Excellent. Uh you, I think there's a there's a, a perception that uh, cyber attackers are only going after very large organizations, and and maybe that perception is based is is caused by the fact that that's what the media reports on. They report on the Yahoos, the the Equifaxes, etc. They don't report on, uh, you know. Bob's Roofing Company or uh, you know the ABC Dental Clinic, for example. What's your perception in terms of the threat to small, medium-sized businesses versus large organizations? Yeah. Oh, so first of all, everybody's a target on the internet. Even as an individual, you are a target. Um, they want whatever you have. They'll take whatever you have. So first of all, let's 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 make that plain. Everybody's a target. Um, the, and you're right. The reason, one of the reasons why the perception is, is that large companies are targets is because of, of media reports, but also because I think intuitively we understand that if I can attack a bank, then I'm, then with, with the same effort that I could put into attacking an individual, I'll get a bigger payout, right? If I attack a bank, I could get millions of dollars. If I attack Kip, you know, I can get whatever, you know, uh, tens of thousands of dollars, maybe if he's, you know, if I, if I take his, um, retirement savings. 
So intuitively, we think attacking the bigger target makes sense. What, what we're not really factoring in is something that I mentioned before, which is cyber criminals are automating their crimes in a way that we've never seen before. So it doesn't cost more to attack a million small businesses than it costs to attack several dozen large companies. So from an attacker's point of view, um, I'm going to attack small medium organizations because they're less well defended than large organizations. I can automate my crime, which means it doesn't cost me more. And if I can knock over a lot of them, I could actually make just as much money as attacking a large organization, maybe even more because I have more numbers behind me. And that's the economics behind uh, do, conducting a ransomware attack on a person's computer and charging them $300 to get their precious photos back, right? So if I can go $300 times, you know, a lot of victims, then I can make a ton of money. And and it's all being done while I sleep. As a cyber criminal, I'm in bed while my machines are attacking. Yeah. And, and, and a good point that you just brought up was that the smaller uh, and medium-sized companies or individuals uh, they don't have the, the same security resources as large organizations. So they are kind of the low-hanging fruit, right? Yes. So how does the shift to the cloud, you know, I mean, some of these cloud providers, uh, you know, Microsoft, Amazon, others, they are able to, or at least they claim they're able to provide a much more secure environment for a lower cost versus a company that wants to build everything on-prem. Are you seeing a lot of of small, medium-sized companies make a move to the cloud? Absolutely. Um, they are going to the cloud. And I think there's great cybersecurity justifications for going to the cloud. What I don't think people are considering enough, and quite frankly, one of the reasons why they're not considering it is because the marketing machine that um, cloud providers have unleashed isn't isn't mentioning uh, a really important part about going to the cloud, which is something that's called a shared responsibility model. Most people going to the cloud have this perception that the cloud provider is going to handle security, and that's only partially true. The cloud provider will handle a lot of the security for you, and that's wonderful, but you still have a role to play. And depending on whether you're buying a software as a service or a platform as a service or infrastructure as a service, the part that you play is going to is going to differ. And so we can look at uh, like file sharing attacks that have been going on where people are stuffing a lot of sensitive data into a cloud-based file server instead of having a file server on their local area network. But they're not doing a very good job in many cases configuring the permissions on that server. And so we're seeing a stream of news stories where um, there's all the sensitive data up in the cloud and there's no password, uh, you know, blocking anybody, literally anybody who can find it from being able to access that data. Now, if you had a file server in your local area network and you didn't put a password on it, the scope of a compromise is pretty limited. Right. You've got you. In other words, you've got to be on that LAN in order to compromise that server. But when you put the same lousy security on a cloud based file server, the scope of that compromise is now global. And so it's the same risk. But because it's in the cloud, it's it's magnet. Its impact is magnified beyond your wildest imagination. So some of that poor hygiene, um, the the negative aspects can be amplified if if all the data is out on the cloud, um, and if by putting things on the cloud, it's not going to also 
prevent somebody from transferring 50 something million dollars just because they don't have a process in place to stop it. Right. So that's right. So, yeah. That's right. Um, well, I, Kip, I don't want to take up too much more of your time here. I, I would like to hear um, a little bit. Well, first off, uh, if you have any kind of words of wisdom for uh, executives out there in terms of, you know, just best practices or things to think about. Uh, but then I'd like to come back and talk a little bit about uh, cyber risk opportunities. Okay, great. Um, so I think that in the course of of our time together, I've I've said a, a lot of the important things that I that I try to say to executives about thinking about cyber uh, differently, uh, about being a, a little bit more cautious about what you're going to get from your cloud providers in in terms of security. Um, <clears throat> but the other thing that I I would like to add is um, is that you can absolutely take control of the situation. And I really recommend that executives don't just um, tolerate cyber risk, don't just relegate it to an additional duty uh, that that you know that somebody on your team is going to take care of. I really think you should lean into this um, to borrow the the you know the analogy, lean into this risk. and here's why. There was a virus called NotPetya that re- was released in the summer of 2017 and it ran through, uh, Europe in a very virulent way. It was actually released in the Ukraine, but it actually had global implications. And and there's a really interesting case study here. So um, FedEx is a small package delivery service in Europe, and DHL is also a small package delivery service in Europe. They're competitors there. FedEx really got hit hard by NotPetya. They, they actually had to close their doors, and they were unable to accept packages or deliver packages. And for days, they didn't even know what packages they had in their warehouses, and it took a long time for them to recover. DHL got hit, but not very badly, and they never stopped doing their job. And when you study the financial statements of these organizations downstream from the NotPetya cyber attack, you'll see that the that FedEx was severely damaged, $300 million in financial damage and uh, lots of, of intangible damage, brand damage, people who defected because if I was trying to send a package by FedEx and they were closed, then I went over to DHL and sent it with them. And I probably am, am still with DHL. And so DHL is thriving. Their volumes are going up. They're more profitable. And all they did was keep their doors open when their competitors didn't. They didn't have to, you know, they didn't go on sale. You know, they didn't do anything special except stay in business. And so if you're an executive and you're trying to figure out, you know, how should I think about the money I spend on cyber uh, cyber risk management, this is another dimension that I think you should be seriously considering. Some excellent advice again there. Okay, so Kip, tell tell me about uh, cyber risk opportunities and the the type of services that you provide. Right. So I founded uh, Cyber Risk Opportunities in June of 2015 because throughout my career I had learned how to serve executives in as a, as an inside resource and i really desired to serve as many people as i could i, I want to have the biggest impact possible on helping people deal with cyber risk because i think this is a real economic problem for for the united states and for western um uh, for western economies um because cybercrime is going to be such a drag on our economies. so i wanted to give people a way to to deal with it and that's why i launched my company we provide what's called a cyber risk managed program and the idea is is that if you don't know as an executive what your top five cyber risks are we're going to help you figure out what your top five cyber risks are because you've got 
unlimited risks coming at you. You have a limited budget, and your big problem is how do I allocate that? Where do I spend those those valuable dollars so that I get the biggest bang for my buck? And what I've observed is, is that there there is very few places that you can go to get a truly independent answer to that question. If you're using your service providers to give you that answer, that's a very biased source because they're coming at it from you know, a perspective of what are they selling that can help you deal with cyber risk. And if you're getting it from the news media, that's a very biased source because the news media tends to want to sell more copies of their uh, of their, you know, their newspapers and magazines. So they're going to report on the more sensational stories and not the stuff that you're probably likely to face. You know, what's a top cyber risk for you? I'll give you one example. A lot of our customers, when we first start working with them, don't have the right indemnification language in their contracts with their vendors. Who is going to tell you that, right? right? Unless somebody comes and and says, "Hey, I've just looked at these contracts, and you really need to um, to you know strengthen the language here." Um, so we help our customers treat cyber as the business risk that it is, and we help them examine all of those dimensions, right? The the people, the policy the process and the technological dimensions and the results of our work are what we call jury ready exhibits. So if you ever end up in front of a regulator or a jury because you've been accused of being negligent with your cyber risk management, by working with us, you're actually going to produce the kinds of evidence that's going to be very persuasive that you have been reasonable according to the Federal Trade Commission's definition. So we're an executive level service and that's how we're helping people. Excellent. Well, it sounds like an incredibly valuable experience, uh, excuse me, service that pretty much every organization out there could benefit from. Uh, I think so. And for the organizations that can't work with us for whatever reason, if you follow part two of my book, uh, we actually have a step-by-step process in part two of the book that you can follow and do it for yourself. And you'll be able to produce very similar evidence that you're practicing reasonable cybersecurity. And we even created an online workbook that automates the steps in part two of fire doesn't innovate. And we've released that for free. Excellent. Now, if, um, people wanted to find your book or uh, buy your book or find out more about cyber risk opportunities, how can they do that? So if you go to firedoesntinnovate.com, you can get a free chapter from the book and, um, and, and check it out. If you like it, you can go to amazon.com and you can buy it there. We've got a Kindle version. We've got a, a soft cover version. It's going to be out on iBooks and, and, um, and in other uh, book resellers soon. You can go to cyberriskopportunities.com and you can uh, look at the, um, uh, the the things that we do when we work directly with with our customers. Uh, I would also suggest that you listen to me because I co-host a podcast called the Cyber Risk Management Podcast, and my co-host is uh, is a practicing cybersecurity attorney. His name is Jake Bernstein, and we release episodes every two weeks talking about these issues. Uh, which is how how do I as an executive manage cyber risk? Excellent. Well, I, again, I've I've read your book. I really think it's uh, you did a great job. It's easy to read, but it's filled with um, a lot of valuable information. And then I, you know, I haven't listened to your podcast, but I will. I know Jake. In fact, I've co-presented with him on a couple GDPR events, and uh, he's incredibly knowledgeable in in his field. So, uh, and a lot of it, valuable information that you've shared with us, Kip. I really appreciate your time, and uh, look forward to crossing paths with you again sometime soon. Thanks so much, Mark. 
Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance. Join our hosts as they discuss a wide range of topics and speak with leading cybersecurity, technology, and compliance experts. Now is the time for Secure Talk.